Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. For our third installment of our Behind the Screen series, we are all Netflix all the time. A woman who is on the reality series Too Hot to Handle talks about what life has been like afterwards. We get attacked so much on social media. I'm just going to stay true to myself, and that's all I can do. And what does the casting director for Bull the Game Show look for in a contestant? We look for people that are root fours. We call them root fours. People the audience are going to look at and really cheer on. And now that my favorite comic book series, The Sandman, has enjoyed its first season on Netflix, what's it like? for one of its editors to watch along with the rest of us? A show like this that I genuinely enjoy, it's nice to like be a viewer. Because when you're making it, it's like you're grinding over frames for hours and weeks and missing, you know, time with our families and stuff like that, but you gotta pay the bills. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's coming up next on Audacious. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're going back behind the screens. On the two previous installments, you met the costume designer for Schitt's Creek, a special effects makeup artist for Star Trek, and the casting director who hired the latest iteration of the Fab Five for Queer Eye. You also heard stories from the food illustrator for The Great British Bake Off, the hairstylist for Issa Rae on Insecure, and an intimacy coordinator talked about what kinds of precautions actors need to make when it's time to film a sex scene. Today, three more people who have spent time in the machine that is the entertainment industry. And all the people you're going to meet today happen to have that Netflix sound at the beginning of their episodes. Chad Haywood is a casting director for Bull the Game Show. Jamin Bricker is an editor for The Sandman, the show based on the Neil Gaiman comic. But first, meet Rhonda Paul. She was a contestant on the first season of Too Hot to Handle. Here's the deal with that show. 14 attractive people are flown to a beautiful resort to be on this reality competition show. They do not initially know the premise or the rules. So they don their skimpiest bathing suits, begin drinking, begin flirting, begin doing a little hanky-panky, and then 12 hours later, they are told what the deal is is. There's a $100,000 reward for the person or people who can obey this simple rule. You will have to abstain from sexual practices for the entirety of your stay. That's one month in which they may not enjoy any sexual activity. No kissing, no heavy petting or sex of any kind with another person or people or alone. To take it a step further, the amount of the overall reward decreases. If anyone is caught doing any sexual activities, and there are remotely operated cameras practically everywhere, including the bathrooms. Here's a spoiler, and it comes up in this interview. Out of the 14 people vying for that hundred grand, 10 of them win, which means they had to split it between them and pay taxes. Rhonda Paul said she applied to be on the show not to get famous, more on that later, but to have an extraordinary experience. And she got it. I asked her what she was thinking when she arrived at that beautiful resort, and what she felt when she was informed of the show's premise. I was in shock because, one, this was my first time being on TV, anything like that. So when they said, okay, guys, it's not just you guys living here chilling. It's going to be some stipulations to it. So in my mind, I was like, I'm here to win some money. I got a child at home. I'm here for the money. I didn't care. I saw it as like competition game. I didn't know what to expect. You know what I mean? So I was just like, I don't care. That's why I was kind of sitting there like, it's just sex. It's just kissing. Like, I can go without that. <laughs> But realizing that it was a complete, because we actually met the guy who came up with the idea towards the end, which was super awesome. 
And he kind of told us about how he came up with this idea and it was never before seen. So then in my mind, I'm like, dang it, it's going to be stuck up there forever. Like, it's never going to go away. My face is going to be up there no matter what, if you click season one. So it was a little bit of excitement, but a little bit of scary because it was just like, you know, you don't want to act different, but then you don't want to act too much like yourself and then make a fool of yourself. So this show was released on Netflix in April of 2020. And a lot of people at that time, of, of course, stuck at home, had a lot of time on their hands, were feeling super anxious and needed some sort of something else to think about. And the show became the number one Netflix program for a bit. What kind of reactions were you getting personally from folks? I was so grateful, but I was so afraid <laughs> because... Listen, I'm not, I'm no Beyonce and I would never want her stature because I want to be able to walk around comfortably. The first time I got noticed in public, I cried. One for being scared. Like, what if I was with my son and it was someone that didn't like me on the show? What if they wanted to do something malicious to me? Or, you know what I mean? It's just like, and then we were wearing masks. So I'm like, how did you notice me? You know, and after they recognized me, everyone started to stare. I was like at a bowling alley at the time. So it was a lot of people and I'm bowling. Someone's like, aren't you Rhonda? And I'm just like, who are you? You know, not a, forgetting, forgetting kind of what has transpired. I'm still Rhonda. I'm still thinking I'm a normal person because I am. I just did a TV show, but I'm still me, you know? So it, it was very overwhelming, but I was, I felt very blessed, but it's scary. If you're not one ready for it or two, it's not something that you're you're trying to obtain like the fame. I want success, but I don't necessarily want the fame of, you know, even right now in today's world, it's scarier. The more popping you are, the scarier it is, you know, so it was a lot of emotions, a lot of overwhelming emotions. And I had no idea how to handle it. Me, especially not liking social media already. Now I have to get into social media as my career. <laughs> yeah, that's that's difficult to navigate because on the one hand, the more people see you, and hopefully you're not a villain in their story, right? Right. But we all know that in order to make connections, you got to put yourself out there. And you put yourself out there in this context. Mm-hmm. And so now as you go about your life and growing your own business, businesses, it's got to be a weird tightrope to walk because you want to be known and seen, but you also want to be known and seen for who you are, not through the filter of a reality TV show. Exactly. What? Exactly. Like how many times people go to a celebrity and go, oh my God, you were on that show. But it's like, I'm still me, you know, like I'm beyond that show. There's other things beyond that show, but I get it. If they have a fascination from somebody, from something, that's what they see. But it's just, I try not to approach, you know, what they call a celebrity. Like someone consider me a celebrity and I'm like, I don't consider myself a celebrity, but I try to treat them the same because imagine how it feels to be treated different everywhere you go just because you're trying to be successful or build generational wealth for your family. Now, you know, you're judged everywhere you go. It's like a double edged sword in a way, but a blessing at the same time. It's just how you work with it. It's it's interesting. Like I said, even now, my emotions about it is still like... I love it. I love it. I love it. I wish I took more advantage of it. But then again, I was never one to want to be in the forefront ever. Are you glad you did it? Like, would you do it again? Absolutely. <laughs> and I say absolutely, because like I said, the experience changed the way I viewed a lot of things. On top of that, it got me on my comfort zone. Believe it or not, I'm a very, 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 very shy person. I never really was good at public speaking. I mean, I was good at it, but I didn't like it. Like, palms sweaty. So the fact, the difference with that show is cameras were all over the place. So after a while, you forget that they're there. And that's what I loved about it. I was able to feel like I could be myself because there wasn't always a camera in my face. Now, there was a camera right over my bed while we slept. Let me tell you, that was awkward waking up and you see a camera pointing back. Oh gosh. If you moved 
weird. You just see the camera turn and rotate and look down at you and you're like, because <laughs> they're trying to catch everything, you know, or they see somebody do something next to you and a move and you're just, it was funny, but I love the experience because I love everybody as if they're just like a second family. Like I got to meet people. I got to travel. Now I know people in Canada, London, LA. I know people, you know, and that was something I wasn't used to doing, traveling a lot, being exposed to different things. So it definitely got me a little bit out of my comfort zone. So I'd always do it again, but I try to stay away from the dating shows because I don't, I don't want to keep getting in that realm of she's just dating around. Like I'm, I'm good on that. I got a man. I'm good. No more dating around for me. (laughs) How much money did you end up making from it? We had to split it because almost everybody won. <laughs> but it was only like seven, eight grand or something like that. And the funny thing is, everyone's hitting me up after the show. Hey, my, this is sick. This is sick. Can you send me money? I'm like. Laughing emoji, laughing emoji, laughing emoji. <laughs> what about my child? What about my life? What about my, my parents is sick? You know what I mean? But it's just people see that and automatically judge you and say, you are on TV now, give me money. Oof. So with reactions like that, were you like, oh, you, you're going to act like this? Did you have people in your life where you were like totally disappointed? I actually, oh, I almost feel like I was getting teared up. I actually lost one of my best friends during the show. I actually did. Oh, no. I never thought I would cry. <laughs> I guess I'll text her today. Um, she lived with me during the show. Um, I used to be a manager of restaurants, right? And she was my employee for a very long time. And we got such, so close. She, uh, set up my baby shower, did all this stuff. She basically became my son's godmom, right? And I still don't know necessarily to this day what went wrong, but once the show came out, she was a little nonchalant about it. And over time, we got more distant, more distant, more distant. And I could just feel like she wasn't as supportive, like she was more jealous in a way. Um, Her birthday came around and I literally took her out, bought her flowers, got her a driver. And I think I asked to take a picture with her. So she was like, oh, I look good enough to take a picture with you or something like that. And I'm just like. But it's just like over time, she became so distant. And I literally like before the lease was up. And this was the same year when the show aired before COVID. Basically, we stopped talking. We were just living in the house together, not speaking at all. To this day, we have not talked in over a year. So it's like it was a good thing and a bad thing because not everyone was as supportive. And I still don't understand what really happened because I'm like bro I'm barely here you know I'm barely here what are you upset about are you upset by this like do you want more attention from it I didn't understand like what the issue was you know because me it's new to me I don't know what to do this world is so scary to me right now so yeah we kind of just fell out and never talked ever again because of the show I feel like if, if I never did the show we would be good to this day I'm so sorry. You make me think about how, you know, you spend this time on the show learning to communicate and just be yourself. And now you've got this situation with this, the godmother of your child and the communication just fell through. Mm-hmm. It was weird. Like super weird, super, super weird. Like I just, I didn't ask for this. You know what I mean? Like I just wanted to do the show. So it's just like, Everything I did was to help her, you know what I mean? Like paying majority of the rent or letting her live with me, not, you know, not, you know, helping her out as much as I could. And then for the show to come out and everything to like literally change, it's just like, what? You said that when this came up that you would want to text her. What would you say? I don't know what happened. I never stopped loving you as my best friend, even though we gave each other space, but like, I still wish the best for you, blah, 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 blah. Whether she responds or not, I just want to let her know, like, hey, I'm low-key still here, regardless, you know. I hope she receives it. Yeah, 
Me too. <clears throat> but that's why I say people don't understand. And a lot, I've heard a lot of celebrities say before that they had to cut off a lot of people while they were in their growth because people don't understand what they have to do, where they have to spend more time away from home to work and do things. And they don't understand that. They just feel neglected. And I'm thinking maybe that's what she felt was neglected because we were like two peas in a pod. And the next thing you know, I'm never home. So it's like, I get it, but it's like, if you communicate, it wouldn't have been that bad if we just communicated, you know? Yeah. And then you think about those who have, you know, just skyrocketed to fame. How messy. I, I'm glad I'm in public radio. Like I've been recognized and it's, it's fine, but I wouldn't want more than this. Like it's, like imagine the, bigger, the more people are they pull away or they want something or they have more ill intent yeah. and it's unfortunate like as soon as i got off the show people are thinking i'm just rolling in money whoa 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 i didn't even get paid yet like wait a second <laughs> i didn't get my 50 cents yet yeah like they don't they just see what they want to see and they run from that and i just think people need to take the time and and it's the same with getting to know a guy. Take your time before you go all in with something. Like, get to know what's going on. Because you give up, give it up. Now, it's it's gone. It's just respect yourself. Know your worth. Know your value. Know what you're trying to do. Have good intent in everything you do. I learned that from my boyfriend. Have good intent and nothing will go wrong. You know? You can, you can look at yourself in the mirror. You can sleep at night and feel proud of yourself. Yeah. And it's like, I'm not being mean to anybody, but when people hit me up about money and I don't respond, it's like, I'm not being mean, but you've never talked to me before. It was just weird because before I had probably like a couple thousand followers on Instagram, right? Never posted anything. But the moment I get that blue check, something happened in the world. If I didn't post about it, people are in my DMs like, you're a horrible person. Why aren't you talking about this? Well, I didn't know now that I was a spokesperson for all issues. Like now you don't know, but you are the spokesperson for everything going on in this world. You have to talk about everything that goes on or they're going to feel a way about you because you're on the radio. So you have a voice. And if you don't use it correctly, they're going to bash. But it's like, I just want it to go and develop myself, which is what I did. I developed myself. I grew from that. I learned about how building stronger connections without sexual contact. That's what I want to let show for. And everybody else is like, no, now you're the spokesperson. We get attacked so much on social media, you know, and the bigger you are on radio, you're going to get attacked so much. It's just, you can't win all the time. You just got to understand the life in the new world that we're in. And it's just like, I'm just going to stay true to myself. And that's all I can do. What would you say if you could go back in time to being in that first day in the villa and you could give yourself advice, a warning, encouragement? What would be the words you would say to that Rhonda in 2019? The biggest thing I rip myself of is the moments. Enjoy every moment. There was moments where I feel like I was sad, so I got a little upset and I took a fun moment away from myself or even after the show. I was so sad that it was ending that I was mad. So I wasn't like hanging out with them at the pool at one time. And I took that opportunity and that moment away from myself. You know what I mean? Like not putting myself out there and just enjoying everything and learning deep from it, looking deep into it, you know? <laughs> It's a lot. Like people don't think these things really can change you, you know? <laughs> well, now that we're wrapping up, is there anything else that you want to make sure you say? I can't believe you made me cry. <laughs> I didn't see that one coming at all. Thanks for opening up with me. And Rhonda Paul, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. It was a pleasure talking to you. I'm going to go send this heartful text and I will keep you in my mind the whole time. Thanks. By the way, I did get back in touch with Rhonda. She did text her friend after our conversation and they began a new dialogue that'll hopefully be healing for them both. When we get back, what does a casting director for bullshit the game show look for? In a contestant. 
You need the personality, you need the energy, but you also need the ability to, to answer these questions correctly, to be able to, to maneuver through that format. And if one of those things isn't right and you really like that person, I try to make it a, as much of a positive experience as possible and then hopefully call them back for something that more fits their personality and their experience. Plus, what does it mean to be an editor for the Netflix series, The Sandman? I'm Kion Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf. Today, behind the screens at Netflix. Later, you'll meet an editor for The Sandman which is an adaptation of my favorite comic book series written by Neil Gaiman. But first, have you seen Bull the game show? Imagine if you will. Uh, the, it, the answer is, um, you're on a trivia show. I took, uh, and you don't know the answer to any of the questions. Sorry. <laughs> um, scary, right? Well, not on this show, because in this game, you can answer questions wrong and still win a million dollars. I totally believed you on that. That's all it takes. It's hosted by Howie Mandel, and the concept of the show, broadly speaking, is that you can win by convincing three panelists that your answer to each trivia question is true, even if it's wrong. Basically, how well can you lie? So who decides who gets a chance to compete on shows like these anyway? Enter casting director Chad Haywood. We recorded this conversation back in January, just a few months before the show premiered. To get started, I asked Chad, when he's out and about, what does he tell people he does for a living? How does he explain it? So prior to COVID, um, when, when people come up to ask, and ask me what I do, and I tell them I'm a casting director, the first thing is, is, is it scripted? Um, and so I, I tell them, no, it's, you know, it's non-scripted. I do a lot of game shows, docu-reality series. And, you know, depending on the company I'm with, you know, they'll ask, how do I get on it? What do I do? I'll tell them the shows I'm working on and then basically pitch the show to them. If it's if it's a fit, they'll go to the website, sign up and hopefully uh, uh, audition an interview. Um, but I, I kind of got into it through a sort of a roundabout way. I was like an actor originally, um, did a bunch of uh, uh, half hour uh, sitcoms back in the 90s, realized I wasn't great at it. And, uh, and and had a friend that was an executive producer who worked on a bunch of clip shows uh, for Fox. Clip shows? Yeah, clip shows. So these are world's wildest police chases, world's funniest families, families' funniest animals. Like you just- Clip shows. You okay. mix it match. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, I took a job as a researcher and uh, thought it was the best thing in the entire world. I basically got to sit in a room and watch TV all day and pick out clips that I loved. Um, did that for a couple years and uh, yeah, being sitting in, a, in an edit bay for, for four years watching clips kind of gets a little bit boring. So took a break from that, uh, had a really good friend of mine that was a casting director for The Bachelor. Uh, he was down in Miami and he said, hey, why don't you come and join me? I've never been to Miami before. So I came down and I got to essentially shadow him and he had the most amazing job in the world. He got to stay in a, a suite at one of the nicest hotels. He got to go out to clubs and parties and meet people and talk to people. And he got to interview him afterwards. And I, I got back to Los Angeles and I was like, this is, this is the best thing in the entire world. Um, so I took a, a, a big chance. I, I sent out my resume uh, to a couple of casting directors, got really lucky, landed a pilot for CBS and uh, the rest is history. I want to hear about how the vibe is between you and the person who you're talking to. Like you 
are this gateway to something that would change their life, not only financially, because it's not all about that, but it's about this experience that they may have. Like, whatever you think about game shows, whatever you think about TV, whatever you think about fame or recognition on this, you know, on the screens that we stare at, like, it's an experience that a lot of people, they get all tingly about. And so you are standing in the way, or you're allowing them through. And what is What's that kind of power like? Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. It's it's tough. It's definitely tough. Um, you know, the, the people that we see that we interview, you know, like you mentioned, have varying reasons for doing the show. It could be money. It could be exposure. It could be to help out a, a sick family member. There's a, a, a myriad of reasons. And you know, you, you know, when you're sitting and interviewing one on one. And if you really love the person and there's just one aspect that's not clicking, right? There's there's one thing that may not necessarily be working. So for example, if it's a quiz show, right? You, you, essentially, you need two things for that to work. You need the personality, you need the energy, but you also need the ability to, to answer these questions correctly, to be able to, to maneuver through that format. And if one of those things isn't right and you really like that person, it, it's it's the worst feeling in the world because you know you're not going to you're not going to put them forward, you know, but you don't want to ruin that experience for them. So no matter what, if I'm sitting in some with somebody that, you know, in the process of this interview, I know is not going to make it to the next round. I make that moment and that experience with them, this interview as positive as possible. And, you know, the reality is if they're not right for one project, they could be right for another. I have a database of, of people that I've worked with, for shows dating back to the sort of the mid 2000s that I call up to this day. You know, if, if, a, if a show's right, if a, if a game show's right, um, I'll call them up. And, and sometimes it's worked out really well. So, you know, if it's not right for, for that moment, I, I try to make it as, as much of a positive experience as possible. And then hopefully call them back for something that, that more fits their, their personality and their experience. There's so many different kind of shows you can cast for, right? Sure. Like you're saying, quiz shows. And, you know, I think about like American Ninja Warrior. You yeah. know, it's going to be a different kind of casting. But like, is there something that everybody who gets cast on the myriad of shows you can get cast on in the realm that you're working within? Is there something about them that they all share? Yeah, absolutely. And I've I've done every single type of show. I've done competition formats. I've done done quiz formats. I've done cooking shows. I've done house-based reality shows. You name it, I've done it. And you know, the the one thing that sort of, you know, is sort of the umbrella quality that we look for is is the ability to convincingly and authentically express emotion, right? Because if you think about game shows and reality TV, it's it's a roller coaster. It's a roller coaster of emotions that change minute by minute, second by second, decision by decision. And we're looking for people that will authentically convey excitement, um, hesitation, nervousness, confidence, all those things uh, with without any sort of filter, without any sort of wall up, um, I think is sort of the universal thing uh, sort of us casting directors look for. And, you know, you, you look at shows like Deal or No Deal, which I did. Um, these people have to have the energy to carry an entire hour of primetime television. Right. So it's 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 a it's a really unique character trait to have. Right. It, it really is for something that you you know, we, we look for people that are root fours. We call them root fours. People in the audience are going to look at and really cheer on and root for and it's it's uh, it definitely is a, a very uh, very hard to find quality. So, how do you tell the difference between someone who's really sincere and genuine and just wears their emotion on their sleeves and on their faces, uh, and how can you tell when they are totally bullshitting you? Like, does that get refined? Is that just a sense that you've always had that? It's uh, it's definitely not a sense that I've always had. It's it's I, I learned on the job. You know, you learn really quickly when you're sitting in front of thousands of people. You know, when you're sitting in a, a conference room at a hotel and you're going through you know a hundred, two hundred people a day. It's it's something that you learn. Um, and you know, it's interesting. A lot of the original reality shows, authenticity uh, was was really really important. And it's a, it's a bit unfortunate that, you know, you sort of look at where television has gone now. Um, it, it's, it really is more about personal promotion. It's about overacting and it's, it's a little unfortunate. I, I try to sort of steer the, the work that I do toward more towards authentic, real people. Um, and, and, and game shows are my favorite. I, I love those. Cause you know, hopefully I get to have people win tons of money. Yeah. 
Will you talk about the new Netflix show that you're going to be working on, Bullshit the Game Show? Yes, I'm so excited to curse. It's called Bullshit the Game Show. So, so excited for the show. It was actually created by the guys who uh, who did um, Nailed It on Netflix. Yes. Um, yeah, just, just one of the best shows ever. So a lot of comedy, a lot of humor. Um, it's hosted by Howie Mandel. Uh, go ahead, Howie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is, you know, we when we found out who it was, it was one of those feelings like, oh my, this show is just getting better and better. There is a ton of money on the line. And, you know, when I said earlier that one of the things I, I absolutely love doing, um, it, it, you know, with, with my job is, is letting people or giving people the opportunity to win tons and tons of money. And uh, I think I succeeded uh, handsomely uh, on, on this show. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. Yeah. Okay. What's the difference between a good casting director for game shows and, well, you? Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, mm. I think the, the the difference is somebody that really loves having people succeed, and it's not just a job. Like I'm in it. I'm in this for the other person. I get so excited when I'm on set and I'm watching somebody that I push for you know, win a million dollars or, you know, somebody that I actually had to fight for. You know, there's a lot of times in this industry where the production company or the network or the executive producer will not want somebody that you put forward. And if you really believe in somebody, you know, you'll, you'll push. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But that's, it's such a rewarding experience to push for somebody to get them through those layers that actually turn out to be a wonderful contestant. So I think it's, it's that desire to see somebody succeed that sort of sets you apart, right? To, to sort of keep that that emotional connection with that person and not have it just be a body or a contestant, have it be a person. Um, I think that's I think that's what sort of differentiates the, the the great casting directors from the good ones. Now, besides bullshit, the game show, of course, if you could be a contestant on any game show in the world, which one would you pick? Yeah, it's funny. Uh, again, I've I've cast for everything under the sun. Um, I, you know, American Gladiators, Deal or No Deal, Top Chef, uh, Sheer Genius, Idiot Test, uh, you know, The Chase. So I've I've learned very quickly where my intellect level is. So it certainly wouldn't be a quiz show. I mean, I you know I try to take the test of these shows before I start, and I'm constantly embarrassed by myself. But um, you know, it's funny when I when I it's I don't think it's on anymore. It could be. Uh, but when Deal or No Deal was on, we used to joke that, you know, if you could count to 24, you could be on the show. That was essentially the main requirement. Right. And and it was it was a million dollars. It was up to a million dollars. So I would think that I, my skill set, since I can count to 24, uh, would would fit amazingly well with uh, with Deal or No Deal. Is there anything I haven't asked you about? I mean, I know, I know we could probably talk for a very long time about this work, but did I miss anything? No, I mean, that's, you know what? That's a funny question. I do the same thing at the end of my interviews with people. <laughs> I, I, I do this and actually it garners some really great uh, answers. And some of the things we actually end up using to pitch these people is, is there anything I miss? Anything that you want to add that would make our producers look at you in a different light? And, and it's a fantastic question to ask. I can't, I can't think of anything personally. You've asked some great questions. Um, but yeah. Great, no, well, I, when you need a new host for another show and you're casting the host and my public radio career is way over, then we'll talk. <laughs> It'll be another couple decades, I think, but we'll talk. Absolutely. I've got your number. <laughs> Chad Haywood, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. After the break, what does an editor for the Netflix adaptation of the Sandman graphic novel series have to tell me about season two. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. You're listening to the new investigative reporting podcast in absentia, which means you're interested in getting to the facts and uncovering the truth. If you'd like to help us continue our investigative work, consider making a donation. Visit ctpublic.org slash tap support and contribute today. 
That's ctpublic.org slash TAP support. Thank you for being a part of the Accountability Project. So you've never donated to this station before? That's okay. Public Media Giving Days are a great time to make your first gift. Here's how. Give now at ctpublic.org slash donate. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. The Sandman was originally a graphic novel series by Neil Gaiman, and it is extremely significant to me, personally. See, I'm the youngest of four, and my oldest brother, Chris, is six years older than me. Being bookends, we didn't really have a lot in common growing up, but that all changed when, in my teenage years, he lent me his copies of The Sandman. It tells the story of seven siblings, called The Endless, who are the anthropomorphic representations of the natural forces they embody. They are dream, death, destiny, destruction, desire, despair, and delirium, who was previously known as delight. My brother Chris? Well, his personality is very similar to dreams. They both have a dark sense of humor and a cutting wit. Chris is so similar that he's always been labeled as dream in my phone. And when I read those books, I strongly identified with Delirium. She's whimsical, colorful, she's in touch with her own dark side, and often full of her previous incarnation, Delight. And when I sign off on my emails to Chris, or Dream, I sign them Dell. So what I'm really trying to hit home to you is that this Netflix adaptation is so important to me because it makes me feel closer to my big brother. So no pressure, Jamin Bricker. Jamin is one of the editors on the series, and I'm going to play a little clip from one of the episodes he worked on called Dream a Little Dream of Me. You'll hear Dream, played by Tom Sturridge, meeting with a character who he hopes can help him, Joanna Constantine, played by Jenna Coleman. My granny used to tell me stories about you lot. I've known your family for centuries. Only you know there's not one of us who can be trusted. What do you want with me, then? Something of mine came into your possession. A leather pouch filled with sand. I need it back. Well, that was yours. Bought an estate sale a while back. Didn't even manage to get the drawstrings open. Where is it? No idea. Could be anywhere. We must find it. Must we? Why is that? Because without it, my realm will cease to exist, and if dreams disappear, then so will humanity. Okay, so I asked Jamin, what exactly does an editor do on The Sandman? Obviously, there's kind of the simple version where they production shoots all day. They they shoot the script with the actors and they set all that stuff up. And in the case of Sandman, a lot of that had pretend stuff, imaginary things, tennis balls, goblins that weren't there, demons that weren't there, that type of stuff. And so... It's my job to get that footage and even at a stage where there's not a lot up there to just make it as compelling as possible. But one thing I love about the Sandman and the showrunner that I work with, this guy, Alan Heinberg, um, he, we kind of have like a similar philosophy on like how to tell stories. You want people to connect emotionally. There may be 20 lines in a scene, right? And when you're watching that scene, when we're watching that scene, it's like, oh my God, this scene, if we take out half of the lines in this scene and just let it breathe, it has so much more emotional impact. People respond better. And so that's, that's the job of the editor. And that's kind of the funnest part is when after the show is all together and you you can like step back and say, how can we make this as compelling as possible? That's my interpretation of being an editor. And who are you working with to figure out which direction every scene or every episode goes in? You know, so they write the script and then before shooting, we have what's called a tone meeting. And it's basically the showrunner, the produce, a few of the producers and the, the director and the editor. And we just literally spend three or four hours going through the script scene by scene, line by line, you know, getting like the emotional clarity of what, you know, what the intention is, because the intention and reality always there's always some shift, you know, uh, then I get the footage in it. And then I do my interpretation. Now, of course I was there. I listened to what everyone said, but at the end of the day, even on a big budget show like Sandman, they didn't necessarily shoot everything that they wanted to shoot or, or a performer didn't 
was sick. So they had to get someone to fill in. Something happened where it, it wasn't exactly the way it was intended. So I get it. And now it's my job to interpret the footage to make it the best possible. And then I show that. To, so I do a whole cut and then I send that to the director. And then with the, for an hour long television show in the States, at least you get four or five days with the director where we go through it and, you know, basically massage it and get it back. It's really kind of a nuanced game at that point, because I've done this long enough where I, my first cut is, is usually pretty strong, you know, like I'm big with sound effects and visual effects and making sure it looks really good. And so the director will come in, we'll start to nuance all the things that he likes. And then when he's done or she's done, we'll send that to uh, the showrunner. And then the showrunner, that's where we spend two weeks, three weeks on it and really kind of open it up or not, or cut things out or add things, shoot new scenes, that type of stuff. And then it goes to studio and network, obviously. And then there's more, more back and forth there, but. Yeah. You cut episode three, three, nine, nine. and I'm an additional editor on the pilot. How has working on this show been completely different than anything else you've done? When you're working on a show, that's this big, you know, obviously you have to use your imagination a lot and you get like temp VFX and stuff from the VFX team, but you have to use your imagination and even the stuff that didn't work. So I don't know if you saw episode three. Oh yeah, everyone. Okay, so episode three, you have uh, a demon who uh, Joanna Constantine needs to send him back to hell uh, because he's he possessed the queen, the princess's fiance, and they're trying to get married. So she performs an exorcism, and the demon comes is realized and. In all the post-viz videos that we had seen, pre-viz files that we had seen where the ant, they kind of do rough animations of what they think it's going to look like, the demon was always on the move and kind of quick and ch- chasing people. But again, when they got the demon, practically his costume was so heavy and fragile, he basically couldn't move. And then, you know, then they were behind time. So they just had to kind of make things, make, make things up. So... So now we have this footage, this demon who's pretty static, and that kind of makes, you know, for not the most exciting scene. We would all get together, me, the showrunner, the director, the uh, post-supervisor, the post-producer, the visual effects supervisor, and we would have blue sky meetings. Like, what can we do? Anything, like anything. Use your imagination. Anything we can do to make this scene more impactful, more dramatic, while also maintaining that dream needs the demon you know, like you have to hit the story beats and the emotionality, you know, the emotional beats that have to be played within the scene. But like that was very freeing and no, you know, it's so rare that it shows like anything. Think of anything. So that that was like really great. When I think about what you do, I think like nobody really thinks about you. You know, when I watch the series, I think about the actors. I think about Neil and his writing. I think I can't wait to see Delirium, my favorite character from Sandman. I, I, you can neither confirm nor deny if you'd like that that they will make a, an appearance in the next season. But people don't really think about you, you know, which in a way I bet is kind of good because you don't want to stand out. You want the story to speak for itself. But also like you, you contribute to this storytelling, but you're under this radar in terms of you know, what I'm seeing and I'm absorbing. Am I right on about that? And if so, how, how does that make you feel? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's dead on. And that's something that I have to deal with um, because I love editing. It's something that just, I took to, um, it was very natural, but I, I am also a people person and I love to kind of get my, my hands in, into, into different facets. I've directed a bunch, I've produced a bunch so there's a big part of me that that'll put together a whole show. And there, there, there's like the deeper ego, of course, where it's like, man, if only they knew, if only they knew, but I know the job, I know the task. It, it's not my thing. You know, I just got to hopefully use the leverage from this to maybe direct something on my own that hopefully puts me in a position where I can move up, you know, in the future, near future. I wonder how this work bleeds into your non- television life like as a public radio host i love talking to people i love asking questions and going to (laughs) some pretty deep places and that's just the way that i've always been but now that i've been doing this job for so long 
sometimes I'm having just a casual conversation with someone and I'll do a pickup, which is when you, you, you kind of mess up what you say and you sort of go back maybe even to the last consonant because it's so easy to edit. Uh, and it's just, it's like a reaction. Or sometimes I'm thinking if this were a recorded interview, my, my, maybe my vocal tone would, be, my vocal tone would be a little bit, see, I just did it there, would be a little bit different, a little more, bit more tight. And so like this work bleeds into my life for sure, but my life bleeds into this work. How is it in that sense for you? Uh, I definitely, that philosophy of kind of like perspective, objective pace is something that is kind of ingrained with me. You know, earlier I said that I wanted to record bands and quickly I learned that I'm not the personality to wait around for musicians. (laughs) You know, I'm not, I just didn't have it. I learned pretty quickly that I didn't have that kind of enthusiasm for that. I just, I'm not like great at math or anything, but I do like kind of like, let's, let's hit the beats and let's move on kind of, let's get to the next thing. So that's something that, you know, (laughs) my wife is constantly berating me for, and you know, I need to slow down from time to time. Uh, You know, whenever I'm shooting video or my wife is shooting video of, I, we have a a three-year-old and that's just like, you know, the, the director editor comes out on me like, Oh no, no, you want to get the backlight. You know, we want those lens flares. Come on, come on, come on. You know, (laughs) so so that's definitely a, a thing as well. Well, the Sandman has gotten the green light for season two. So what can you tell me about it? I think they're going to hit a lot of the big favorites. You know, you mentioned a character that I think is hard to imagine. We wouldn't see her. So uh, that's good to know. It's great. <laughs> I, I was going to say, like, if I don't know if casting is all done, but I mean, uh, this public radio thing is nice and all. But if I was offered the job is delirium, I would take it. <laughs> we'll, just get, we'll get you some pink hair, some blue hair. Get, get the contacts. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can't wait. And, you know, there's stuff in the comic books that I'm like, I hope that they do. Like, I don't know if you remember, there's like, a, they tear off someone's face who's like a ghost and they hammer it to a wall. Like, I hope, you know, there's like parts of me that like, oh, I just hope that this kind of stuff makes it in and I can't wait to hear how they do it. And, you know, that's really fun and um, to hear about the how they're making it. And then sometimes even being included in those conversations is, is really great as well. So if they did an episode based on Brief Lives, which is, of course, a delirium-centric uh, volume of The Sandman, would you be able to be like, hey, I'd like that one? Or do they just they assign it to you? How does that work? Um, it, we kind of work in rotation. And some of it is, is dependent on availability. Um and then the, the other side of it, it will be dependent on just like how, if Alan wants to dictate the rotation some, it's traditionally there's three editors. Uh, we, we had four on it this past season. So it's like, you know, I, I, if let's say I'm the first editor on, I would edit one, four, seven, ten, And that's kind of like the lead editor, you know, I mean, you know, sometimes that's the case. And sometimes you're just the editor who got the fourth episode while everyone else got three. So And in some ways it might even be beneficial. Like let's say you really wanted brief lives, but it just didn't happen that way. Maybe that, maybe that's good because you're sort of like, if that's your favorite episode, maybe you're already sort of obscured by your vision of it in a way that maybe make it harder to open up to other ideas. First of all, we do, there is like, as we get overwhelmed, we do, there is some cross pollination, like, Oh, here, do you need me to cut a scene that type of stuff? So our hands are always kind of a little bit in everyone's pies, but ultimately it's like, at the end, like it, Alan will be like, Hey, will you just watch episode five? Just, and tell me what you think. Give me your, and, and so like it's, then I get excited and amazed or, or, you know, maybe like I would have done it differently there, but like, I think more times than not, I'm watching someone else's episode and I'm like, man, this is great. I wish I, I wish I had a crack at this, but it feels like a, a show like this that I genuinely enjoy. It's nice to like be a viewer because when you're making it, it's like you're grinding over frames for hours and weeks and missing, you know, time with our families and stuff like that, but got to pay the bills. You spend a ton of time working with the minutia of these episodes and all these components. And finally everything's done and it's, you know, it's got the Netflix tone before it. And there we go. Everything's released and people are watching it and maybe you watch it with your family or friends, or maybe there's some sort of party that your colleagues have to watch it all are you ever able to just let go and enjoy it? 
Definitely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, by that point, you know, by the time it gets, it airs to Netflix, it, cause it takes so long to like, uh, they've, I, we finished these episodes. It's like episode three. I, I'd finished like last June, you know what I mean? And it just came out, you know, a couple months ago. So yeah. So I also did Firefly Lane and, um, Firefly Lane. Now that's it. That I really enjoyed because like I could sit down with Molly, my wife, and uh, she like loves the series and to just watch her totally engage and love these episodes and stuff like that. It just feels really good too. And I think that's part of an editor's experience too, is a lot of times you do have to watch through someone else's eyes and that will dictate how you edit. And so she's like a, a soundboard for me. She'll come in and watch scene, scenes and be like, she'll either say, I don't understand what's going on here. Or, that was beautiful or hopefully tear up or whatever. And, uh, so that's when I get to really experience it. And then by the time it airs, I, I to be honest with you, I've kind of forgotten about it and I do get to enjoy it. <laughs> well, Jamin Bricker, I look forward to editing you. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for talking with me. Audacious is always lovingly produced by me, Jessica Severin Martinez, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, with help from our intern, Taylor Doyle. Subscribe to Audacious and you'll always get to hear the show a day early. Plus, you can listen back to those previous installments of our Behind the Screen series where you'll hear interesting tidbits such as what vegetable the food illustrator for the Great British Bake Off has never drawn. And how could he have never drawn an onion before? That is wild. They're in freaking everything. And also, they are so very beautiful. You can hear all of our episodes at ctpublic.org audacious or wherever you get your podcasts. Send me your reactions and show ideas and doodles and non sequiturs to me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Wolf, or send an email to audacious at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening.